All right, back to Ezekiel chapter 38, as we are going to continue this observational exercise on this section of Scripture. Obviously, we know why we are currently doing this observational exercise. That's because of the current situation unfolding within Israel. I mean, if you've seen the headlines today, it's... uh, it's not good. Uh, the situation continues to get worse and worse and worse. I could go through all the headlines, but I won't right now. Just just obviously escalation, not de-escalation is the situation. And so as that situation continues to develop, more and more um, pastors, ministries, Christian websites are going to be looking to Scripture to tie it to the current situation within Israel. I uh, see just the other day, let's see if I can find it. Just the other day, an article was published. Let me see if I can find it. Um, See here if I can find it. They were connecting a psalm to uh, the current situation in Israel. See if I can find it here. Believe, believe it was like Psalm eighty three. Let me look. I've saved so many articles in regards to it. See if I can find it really quick. Yeah, I believe it was Psalm 83. I can't find it currently. I thought I saved the article, but um, it was at the Christian Post, so maybe I can get back to it, see if I can. But uh, at some point, I want to find the article because I wanted to save it. So, give me a second here. No, I don't want to know about that movie. Here we go. If I can find it. Because uh, it's another one of those passages that we may have to do an observational exercise on. Because this is going to be the normal right now. This is just going to be the normal thing happening over and over and over and over again. And uh, let's see here. Oh, I didn't. I thought I saved it. I can find it. Yeah, uh, Psalm 83, uh, Bible prophecy, Psalm 83 foretells of a future 10-member alliance with Arab territories. So this one doesn't ask the question. There's been, a, then there's been multiple articles then published lately about this because one said, it does Psalm 83 prophesy the current situation this one states it in a more dogmatic way. So Psalm 83 is another one we're going to have to look, look at. But ministry after ministry is going to be doing this. They're going to look at the current situation and they're going to go to a different scripture. And obviously the one scripture I said I had already heard mentioned in a number of broadcasts was Ezekiel 38 and 39 because everyone says that that foretells something that's going to happen. A lot of people have said this current situation is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it's laying the groundwork. It's, it's showing you that it could be on the way and that it could be arriving. So we, I've decided then that on all of these passages that everyone's going to be turning to, that you have two op, you have a couple of options. You go to the passage, you look at how they interpret the passage, and then you simply interpret it based off what? What? How did most churches do so? Their system, right? So it's just really what you're battling. Just make sure you understand there's so much of arguing in Christianity is not an argument over text. It's an argument over what? System versus 
system, right? That's what it is, okay? So when you, you put forth your argument, you put forth their argument. If you listen to their argument, their argument, they, they will try to tell you it's based off the text, but I guarantee you it's not. In fact, if you listen to their argument, take part of what they say and Google it, you'll find out they took it from a book, a pastor, a website that's putting forth an system. What I'm trying to do is we got to stop the system versus system stuff. We have to stop the system versus system stuff. Why? Because what, what, what does system versus system stuff get, get us? Okay. Well, it keeps us from the text. Right? So what we have to do is set aside the system and get to the text. Now, what, now what's, what in my naive mind, what do I always think that will lead to? My, my naive mind, if you, if you, if me and Sarah have a disagreement and she goes home and spends 10, 12 hours working on the text, I spend 10, 12 hours working on the text and the next time we talk, hopefully we should be where? Well, maybe not at the same point, but we should be like, hey, based off what the text actually says, all the, these 15 things over here that we're arguing about, they're not even options. Now we still may disagree, well, our disagreement should be this close together versus, you know, separated like the Grand Canyon. But the problem is, is it easy to get people to do that? No, they won't do that. Because it requires hours and hours and hours and weeks and maybe months of work. So I'm saying, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't control what the rest of Christianity does, but I'm tired of the system. I'm tired of that whole concept. I'm tired of of theology being reduced to simply systems, and then the systems become what? The hermeneutic. Therefore, we no longer are doing exegesis, we're doing eisegesis. We're reading the system into the text. So that's what we're trying to get away from. So I've tried to get us to step way back and just look at the text doing an observation. Our observational work on Ezekiel 37 was rather simple, straightforward, And I don't think it's very difficult, right? Ezekiel 37 seems to give us, first of all, it seems to be speaking of whom? Okay, everyone should just be like dogmatic. It should be loud. I mean, what's what's the phrase that's used multiple times in Ezekiel 37? House of Israel. Everybody remember that? We looked up all the references. The whole house of Israel. So we are pretty sure that that's not referencing the church or spiritual Israel is referencing the nation. Okay, according to Ezekiel 37, what are some things that are going to happen? We reference them as, if you, if you didn't write them down, at least get this memorized so that you can speak authoritative of Ezekiel 37. Number one, the resurrection of the nation. Number two, restoration to the land. Three, unification, because two sticks are going to become one. Regeneration and God dwelling in the midst of them. Everyone, please get those down so that you know Ezekiel 37. All right? And if that is a reference to the nation, what can we dogmatically, authoritatively say? It hasn't happened. We can dogmatic, authoritatively say it hasn't happened. And if you'll keep Ezekiel 37 primarily about 
Israel, then we can say that hasn't happened. Now, either one, you have to then spiritualize it and make it about something else, or you have to say it has to happen somewhere in the future. You should have those things memorized, right? Like they need to be memorized, okay? Because if that, that's, that's, that really everything hinges on that. Now, we looked at Ezekiel 37 because typically it's separated from Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we put forth an argument, right? What was that argument? If Ezekiel 37 comes before Ezekiel 38 chronologically, and if Ezekiel 38 follows Ezekiel 37 chronologically, then Ezekiel 38 and 39, whatever it's referring to, cannot occur until those things happen to Israel. That would mean we would have to put the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which most people say refers to some kind of military attack and destruction of the enemies of Israel. We would have to say that that occurs after that, which would put it where if you're looking at a prophetic chart? After the millennial reign. Well, one of my friends in Nebraska contacted me and said, that cannot be true if we take it chronologically. And what scripture do you think he utilized to put forth that argument? That it cannot happen after the millennial reign if we're taking Ezekiel in chronological order. We'll see how good a Bible student you are. Possibly. Well, first, let's just ask ourselves an obvious question. If we're taking 37 and 38 and 39 in chronological order, what follows 37, 38, and 39? 40, okay. What happens in the whole rest of the book? Okay, it's all about the temple, right? Okay, so if there's a temple, then go, then where is a scripture in Revelation that would cause massive problems? No, it's a, another passage in the book of Revelation that caused a problem. There's a passage in Revelation that says there will be no temple. Nobody knows this verse. Oh, there we go. Someone knows the verse. Good. Okay, there. There's no temple. No, wait. All right. Now, what we need to figure out is when is there going to be no temple? When the New Jerusalem comes down, all right? When does the New Jerusalem come down? Before or after the millennium? After the millennium. Okay, now wait a minute. After the millennial reign. So if that happens after the millennial reign, well, during the millennial reign, we would assume there has to be a temple, right? Okay? Because if you look at everything going on, remember, Israel's supposed to be back in the land who's supposed to be dwelling in the midst of them. Christ, right? And so many would argue there has to be a temple. Some refer to it as the millennial temple. Okay, well, wait. So then the war can't happen after that if you're taking Ezekiel in order because after this supposed battle, what then is built? The temple. So then everything falls apart. So then that would mean, does everyone understand that? Okay, I'm sure everybody understands the, the, the problem there. Okay, 
So, in other words, if this battle happens at the end of the millennial, and at the end of the millennial there is no temple, well, then the order doesn't make any sense. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. And that's, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing when we're doing observations. We're all working together looking for these observations. So I, that... Now, now, what you can do is then say, well, then it's not in chronological order then to make it fit, right? That's, that's, that's in... Yeah, then you can say 40 is out of order. Well, not just 40. 40 all the way to the end of the book, right? Yeah, to the, I mean, that's a long section. So, ah. Oh. That makes it more difficult, does it not? So if we don't put it at the end of the millennium, do you see our problems? Then 37 can't be in any kind of chronological order. You ever ever understand the problem, right? Because then, because 37, Israel's got to be completely regenerated, restored, unified, Christ in the midst of them. Then the battle, the only place to put that is the end of the millennium. So I don't know what we do now with you. The whole order is, this is the problem with so, Jeremiah's not in chronological order. We've already read things that say Ezekiel's not in chronological order. What's are not in chronological order? What is the danger? We can put it anywhere we want. That's not Bible study. That is taking what? A system, then putting it in the order that fits the system. That's no that come on man that we got that's a joke okay that's why that's why lost people would mock us all day they're like well how convenient that you can just put it in any order you want that's great and but the bible's going to give you the truth you got to understand why they would laugh at us and i don't have a good answer i don't have a good answer so what we're going to say is i don't know what to do then about the chronological i don't know what to do cuz that's a very good argument because it fits great if you go, oh, look, 37, Israel's restored, regenerated in the land. Christ is in the midst of them. Then at the end of that, there's this battle. Okay, great. It all fits. Because what happens at the end of uh, the millennial reign? Everybody, everybody look at their Bibles. Go, go to the book of Revelation. Look at them right after the end of the millennial reign. Yeah, Satan is loosed. What are the exact words that are used? What are the exact words? I want to make sure everybody knows the exact words. Okay, so now the the one good thing here now you see where you see where it's difficult not to put uh, uh, Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine right here, right? It's the, same words. it's the exact same words. Okay, it's the exact same words, right? God can make God is used. So then you see why you want to put it there. It makes perfect sense. So then, what could you say? Well, then is Ezekiel thirty-seven in order? Well, Ezekiel thirty-seven would kind of flow with it, right? Because the millennial reign, Ezekiel 37 sounds like the millennial reign, yes? Okay, so that fits. 38 and 39 fits there. Then what in the world is 40 to the end of the book of Ezekiel? I mean, and everyone has asked the question, what in the world is going on there? Because one, it describes a temple that's never been built. So then what, what do some people do with Ezekiel 40 all the way to the end? 
They say it's a spiritual picture of the church. and Who knows? It's just insanity. Well, that's a lot of chapters describing in great detail a spiritual picture with actual physical measurements and actual physical materials. Can we agree on that? All right, so I, look, so there's a part of me that wants to say Ezekiel 40 to the end is not in chronological order. But you know why I want to do that? Because then it makes perfect, you know how easy it is to say, clearly Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens where? What was the verse? Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Right? Is it 7 or is it 8 that uses the word Gog and Magog? 8 uses Gog and Magog, right? Yes. So you see why, you see why I would want to do that? But see, that's, that I'm wanting to do that for what reason? Because it fits, okay? But I will argue, at least there's a textual reason for putting it there. Can we agree? I think there's a textual reason for doing so. So we're going to go back. So I just wanted to at least throw that out there. We still don't have a definitive. I mean, I'm still going to going to be patient here, and, and, and we're, gonna, we're not going to draw any definitive conclusions. I just want you to see this is the kind of work that, that goes into doing an observational exercise. We have to put forth the work, put forth the effort to try to come to some conclusions. And sometimes we're not going to have good conclusions, all right? But let's go back to Ezekiel 38, and let's do a lot of work here this morning, all right? Everybody ready? Any questions about that? Did that make sense? Are you sure? You're now experts, right? Okay, good. I'm glad to know that y'all all think you're experts. That's good. Uh, we'll see where we can go with this, all right? All right, now. Oh, boy, let's, go. let's do a lot of work here. Everybody ready? Okay, Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Gog. Now, I'm going to be reading from this translation. Uh, so... Um, because there's a reason at the beginning here, I'm going to be using a different translation because you'll see here, all right? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. All right, we, lo- we started looking up a lot of these words and places and names, right? We did, we did, we, I, I don't know, did you, can we say we came to any great definitive conclusions? I can't say that we did, Right? I can say that it seems clear to me, and I think the text seems to make it clear, that Gog, when we refer to Gog, we refer to what? Gog is a, seems to be a person, and Magog seems to be land. All right? Everybody got that? I'm going to borrow from a commentary. All right? This is very important. Okay? In the general context of God's restoration of Israel... They're referring to what? Ezekiel 37, all right? Here, Ezekiel prophesied against Gog, a ruler. How many, how many, everybody okay that Gog is the ruler? Okay, everyone, do, do we feel that we can prove that observationally? I don't want to, I don't want to imply, I don't want to place a system on this. Meshach and Tubal. Okay, right. All right, so clearly it's referencing a person. Ezekiel 38 makes Gog a person, a ruler, a chief prince, as some refer to him as, okay? There's much debate about that phrase, chief prince, uh, so we'll get into that in a second, okay? 
Everyone does, and then it goes on to say, and Magog is the place of Gog. Magog is the land. All right? Now, I think we had some struggles. Do we restrict Magog to one country or do we, do we place Magog as a region? Did, did we kind of have a back and forth on that on Wednesday? Okay, well, one, I think one, common, one dictionary said it's north of Israel. I think another one kind of made it reference to more of a region. Okay, so, all right. But we, it's a, it's a, it's, put it this way, land slash region, we'll go with that, okay? We'll at least give ourselves a little bit of leeway. All right, now this is very important. Here, Gog is noted as the prince slash chief prince. The, the King James refers to it as chief prince, but some translations has the prince of Rosh, R-O-S-H. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Okay. Now, this is where a lot of, of things come because it's Rosh, R-O-S-H. Some say Rosh, Rosh, Rosh. What do you think people do with that? Russia, there you go. All right, all right. This is where this all comes into being that this is an invasion of Israel by Russia. So if any time anything's going on in Israel, if Russia even sneezes, everyone's like, Ezekiel 38! But look up, I think Sarah's doing it right now. Are you looking up R-O-S-H? I'm reading that from a commentary there. No, most, most don't, King James doesn't either. Right, right. Some, some Bibles do that. Even here, right, on this Bible at the bottom, guess what it has here for 38.2? 38.2 reads, okay, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal or the prince of Rosh. So some manuscripts include Rosh there. Or, right, because some think it should just be translated prince, some think it should be cha- translated chief prince, and some think it should be translated chief prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. All right, so there's a lot of little speculation here. Now, listen carefully, all right? Everybody ready? I'm going to go through all of this because this, this will kind of give us some observation. Since we've already done some observational work, we're backing up a little bit. Identifying Gog and the battle described in this chapter has interested interpreters and students of Bible prophecy since ancient times. It is a difficult problem without any clear solution. Everybody hear that? Without any clear solution. Did you find something, Sarah? Okay, all right. But some say then it should be translated just... Chief Prince, some say then because it's translated Rosh, then it should be Chief Prince of Rosh or Prince of Rosh, and that's where you get into all the difficulties. Because, 
Right, because the because it's some say it should be Prince of Rosh, and that Rosh is a place. Right. I, well, I know that, but I'm saying this is how this. I'm just saying this is where preacher after preacher goes with it. Right. Well, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read here in a minute. What, basically, that's what it comes down to, just because of the sound. But they try to argue that there's, there, there's depending on the, on the preacher, I, could, I mean, I, I could spend a couple of hours at, you know, reviewing sermons, but they all will make some kind of linguistic argument that it is connected to Russia. Now, whether their linguistic arguments are accurate, I, I call greatly into question, and some of it is very I, almost spec, speculative, than actual linguistic work. What does yours say? Yep. All agree. All agree. <laughs> 12, Matthew, yep. Okay. Okay. To ball, yeah. Tabal and Tabasque, right. Yeah, Moscow and Tabasque, yep. And, and I bet you, are you using a Schofield Bible by chance? Okay, well, those notes, the, those notes, I guarantee you, are from the 1917 Schofield Reference Bible. I, you know why I can prove... I, Okay, it is Schofield. Okay, I'm like, that is direct quote from the 1917 Schofield reference Bible. I was going to get to that in a minute. I was going to get to that in a minute. Uh, Moscow is a, or Tabasque, yeah, I believe it. I think I don't have the word in front of me, but I believe it's Tabasque, right. S-K? Okay, Tabalsk, right, right, okay. So, yeah, that's where, so that's where they go. But, but I'm saying that, that goes all the way back to the early 1900s, right? So people have been struggling with this for a long time. We'll look at the reasons here in a minute, all right? So I just want you to see why we have to deal with this. So this is what happens. This commentary immediately admitted what? This chapter has interested interpreters for centuries without, and it, it, it is a difficult problem without any entirely clear solution. It does not have a clear solution. You know why pastors don't say that from the pulpit? Because that ruins people's nice little three-point sermons. People want to go to church and say, we're going to be studying Ezekiel 38 today, and here's what it's about. And everybody's like, ooh, pastor, how did you see that? He made it up! Well, actually, he didn't, even, he didn't even bother to put forth that much work. He took it from another book which he did not bring to the pulpit or quote the page number. That's the kind of garbage that's called preaching in the American church. And the people in the pew eat it up and they love it because it's three nice little points. It's organized. It's nice. It's, it's concise. It's, it's, and, and nobody cares about truth. Because the reality is any pastor should say, we're going to be studying Ezekiel 38. And guess what we know? Absolutely nothing. We don't have a clue what's going on in this chapter. And if you think you do, it's because you took it from someone's system. Now, I could have come up here, taken uh, Schofield, 
a little bit of MacArthur, mix it all together, and I can say, we're going to look at Ezekiel 38. And ladies and gentlemen, there's coming a time where Russia will come against Israel. And we need to be paying close And then I could read some news articles about Russia's possible involvement. And everybody would be like, ooh, oh, Jesus is about to come back. And everybody would tell me it was a great sermon. Who cares if it's a great sermon if it's completely based off just made up stuff? But people don't care if it's made up on stuff. They just care if it's a good sermon. And I'm tired of good sermons. I'm sick of good sermons. Good sermons have never done anyone any good other than keeping people what? A million miles away from the actual text. But people want that. They want that. And, I'm, and I, don't, I'm, I don't understand how to get people to stop wanting that, but that's okay. All right, so listen carefully. Here we go. Everybody ready? Everybody listening? Thinking caps on? All right, there is no other Old Testament description or connection with Gog apart from 1 Chronicles 5.4, which seems to have no relevance to the passage. Gog seems to be a wholly new and strange enemy of Israel. Everybody look at 1 Chronicles 5.4. Just tell me what you find there. Okay. That has no reference, that has nothing to do with Ezekiel 38. So, that means when you get to Gog in Ezekiel 38, guess what you're dealing with? Something that's unknown. You've got no cross. Remember, what, what does everyone always say is the key hermeneutic? You, can, you interpret scripture with scripture. That's what everyone says. Everyone claims that. They never actually do it. But they claim that that's the way it works. Well, guess what? You're out of luck as far as Old Testament references. Well, I mean, grab the Bible dictionary. We did that Wednesday, right? What did we find? Does everybody remember the Bible dictionary? Look it up. Everybody grab the Bible dictionary real quick. Look up the entry for Gog. Okay, there was, there was two people. Uh, I think they said there was two people named, and then I think it does offer some information about... Everybody look it up. Let's just make sure we're all on the same page here. Now, we're kind of going a little backwards, but that's okay. If we got if we got to repeat it a hundred times, we'll get it down. Yeah, the leader of a confederacy of armies that attacked the land, described as the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Gog is also depicted as being the land of Magog, a place far north. Ezekiel particularly describes Gog and his allies striking Israel with fierce. Do they identify who it is? No, doesn't identify. Remember, that was the whole issue. We don't know. We don't know. This commentary is acknowledging, hey, we don't have anything to go by. We have nothing to go by. So it's impossible to identify God. So what does everyone try to do? They try to identify God because he's supposedly the prince of Rush. Look, and they're going to use it. They're going to talk about that in just a second. So everybody stay with me. All right. So according to this, God is a strange new enemy of Israel. Magog is mentioned as a descendant of Japheth in Genesis 10.2 and 1 Chronicles 1.5, but is never presented as a threat or enemy of Israel in any Old Testament passage. So Gog and Magog has some references to some people, but that does seem to have nothing to do with this situation in Ezekiel 38. Something new, something unique is happening that seems to have no correlation to anything in the Old Testament. All right? Now everybody's listening to this next paragraph. 
The phrase Prince of Rosh has also been translated as Chief Prince. All right? Which is, how many of your Bible say Chief Prince there in 38.2? Chief Prince, okay. So, so... And, right, of, of Tubal, right. Okay, the, the phrase Prince of Rosh has also been translated as Chief Prince with the idea that the word Rosh describes the greatness of the prince, not a place. Right. But others would argue that, that's, that, that it's not the case. Look, I'm just, look, if you want to argue with all the people who, I'm just saying, I understand. Look, I completely agree. If we look up the meaning of the word, it seems to be, it's describing chief prince, right? Right. So I, I completely agree. I completely agree. But I'm just saying, not, not everyone agrees with that assessment, all right? So let me read this again. The phrase prince of Rosh has also been translated as chief prince with the idea that the word Rosh describes the greatness of the prince, not a place where the prince rules. Uh, not a place where the prince rules. Translators and interpreters, listen, do not agree if it should be prince of Rosh or chief prince. Translators and interpreters do not agree. There is no agreement on it. Everybody got that? If Rosh is understood as a name of a people or place, now this is how, I want you to think, remember, whenever you have disagreements and someone's like, Rosh should be described as a place, what do you always do? What do I always tell us to do? Step back and agree with them. All right, so we're going to step back and agree with them. And let's see what is said here. Are you ready? If Rosh is understood as a name of a people or a place, It has no other connection or reference in the Old Testament. Meaning, then what? We have no way to clearly define what it is. Look in a Bible dictionary to see if there's even an entry for Rosh. Okay, what does it say? The name of a person? Okay, three northern tribes. So, so it doesn't give us any further than that. So, so you still could not connect it with Russia or anything else, right? Okay, here, here, here we go. Here we go. Are you ready? Listen to this. There are many who think that Rosh speaks of Russia or the Russians, but the only direct evidence. Are you ready for the direct evidence? Do we do the law and order sound? Dum, 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 dum. Right? However, the law and order thing goes, how does it go? All right, so, okay, never mind. All right. All right, here we go. You ready? The only direct evidence is that it is the similar sound of the names. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Listen, they're going to say that. But this happens in churches all over. I guarantee it's happening in churches in Abilene today, probably. Okay? Meshach and Tubal were people to the north of Israel, somewhere near the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. 
Those were people's no, these were people nowhere else noted in the Old Testament for any threat or animosity against Israel. Though the names Meshach and Tubal have a similar sound to the Russian cities of Moscow and Tobolsk, similar sounding names alone are not enough to make a certain connection with Russia and her cities. Everybody see that? So there's no, what can we dogmatically assert? it seems, is that just from an observational stand, remember I told you, if you just read Ezekiel 38, you really don't have a clue what's going on here. The chapter is just written weird. You don't know what's going on. So why, why do so many people cite it and so many people reference it? Because they've been taught a system has been placed upon it. There's no way you're going to read Ezekiel 38 going... This is Russia. They're going to get a confederacy and they're going to come against Israel. Then God's going to show up and wipe them all out. The best you can do is connect it with what? What's your best option? What's your best option to do with Ezekiel 38? Nobody knows a best option. No, your best option is revelation because it literally mentions the words, right? Okay. And then that your best option, that's your best option is to connect it to that. Right? That, that's your best. I mean, I'm telling you, that's, you don't have any other option. You're just going to be flaying around going, I don't know what this has to do with anything. Well, well, my, my, uh, I'm saying it's, uh, it, it, it's, you, everyone would have an incentive to say they're in order because they fit a certain idea, but I don't know if that's, that's based because we're trying to make it fit a system. I'm, I'm saying it's the best connect, the best option is to connect it because the words are used. I'm not saying that that tells us anything about its chronological order. The chronological order is because we would be motivated because it does what? We can make it fit. But being motivated because it would work doesn't make it correct. It, it fits perfectly. Ezekiel 37, you have the restoration of Israel. Boom, they're in the millennial kingdom. Does that fit in Revelation 20? Yes. At the end of Revelation 20, what happens? There's a war. Okay, all right. Does it mention the words Gog and Magog? Yes. Does that fit Ezekiel 38 and 39? Yes. Okay, boom. So, I... Because it fits so good, there is a temptation to make it work. But it's hard to prove that that's the way it's supposed to work because, well, 37, 38, and 39, they're in order. But just ignore the rest of the book that's not in order. You know, that's, that's a lot of chapters. How many chapters in Ezekiel? 48? That's eight chapters not in chronological order. And that doesn't even get into what comes before it. Right. Do I? I know. Hey, these nine chapters just don't happen to be in any order. So I'm just saying that you have to be at least honest with... Because again, I I tend to look at it from a skeptic's point of view. A skeptic's point of view would be like, well, how convenient. You've got three chapters that are just perfectly in order and tells your little story about how the good God is going to come defeat the bad devil. But when when the chapters don't fit your little narrative... You just say they don't fit. They just, you're, you're okay. Well, you can tell why uh, skeptics would mock us for that. 
We would mock them for that, would we not? Okay, so I mean, let's be fair. So I, but I, I can only say from a textual standpoint, if you're going to connect Ezekiel 38 and 39 to anything, you only got one option. That's the revelation because that's the only place where the words are used, right? So that, that's, that's, that's the only thing I know to say. They go on to say this. Um, Notice also that none of these enemies are the old ones which were familiar as hostile to Israel. In other words, when you get to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and they start mentioning some of the, these are not the familiar enemies that have been mentioned throughout the entire Old Testament. Okay. Philistines, Egypt, uh, Assyria, Babylon, like none of it, none of it, it's, it's completely different enemies. So, so now you could argue we could argue, let, let's just do, let's do this from an observational standpoint. Let's think this through. If you get to a chapter and it mentions people, places, name, and all of this, and you have no connection to anything else in the entire Old Testament, nothing. There's no connection to the, that should tell you what? Mm, something's, something's weird here, right? Something's different. So that may mean that could be an observational argument for then maybe it has to fit something else because it doesn't fit anything else. Right? When we're reading the rest of the Bible, do we not see the same names mentioned over and over? Assyria, Babylon, you know, the, like I said, the Philistines, Egypt. Like, these are normal things. Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, all of that. None of that. Nobody even has a clue what to do with it. So clearly it's something unique. I think that that's important, all right? Um, here we go. Um, it is a, he says, it is a new, this commentary says, it's a new confederacy and antagonism. There's something, it's a new confederacy of nations, a new confederacy of, of, of groups, a, a new antagonism. This is something new, it's something unique. Now, other commentaries, older commentaries, and they name a bunch of them, identified Gog with Antiochus Epiphanes, the great persecutor of the Jewish people in the period between the Old and New Testament. This is an extremely unlikely conclusion, right? I think Antiochus Epiphanes, it would be, I think it would be hard to connect it to that, right? I think it would be hard. Because one, you're ignoring 37, right? And what would you base that off of? Yeah, that don't say. Probably because, you know what they're trying to do? Those commentaries are trying to find a historical fulfillment so there is no future fulfillment. Because future fulfillment creates, well, if you're going to say that the church replaces Israel, well, then you can see why a future fulfillment would be very difficult, right? And if they look at 37 as not being about the nation of Israel, but that spiritual Israel, and 37 is about the church, well, then you're, <laughs> you're, you're going to have to do it. You see, you see where your system ha- will lead? See how so many times your interpretation is driven by what? Your system. And that's what I'm trying to, to get us away from. Others see Gog as the king who lived more than 100 years before Ezekiel's time, all right, his name is G-Y-G-E-S, the king of Lydia. They said this is, when, I think we read about him in one of the dictionaries. This is also an unlikely conclusion. Um, and then, well, 
there's just a lot of, I could just go on here. <laughs> I could just go on here and throw all kinds of things here. Here's, here's from Warren W. Worsby. It's tempting to identify Rosh with Russia and therefore Meshach with Moscow and Tubal with Tobolsk, uh, but both cities in Russia. But we would have a hard time defending this on linguistic grounds. This doesn't rule out the participation of modern Russia since it's located in the north. I say, but neither does the text demand it. So there's all this, I could go on. There's pages and pages of speculation here. There's just pages and pages of speculation. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So let's go back to Ezekiel 38 then. Let's go back to Ezekiel 38. Right. So what we need to try to figure out then, all right, let's do this. Everybody got their thinking caps on? Everybody paying attention? All right. From a chronological perspective, we can see why we would be tempted to put 38 and 39 at the end of the millennium. And the reason why is because of chapter 37. Everybody got that? The second reason we would be tempted to do so is because what is mentioned in Revelation 21? Gog and Magog. And let's, um, let's go back and read those verses carefully. Let's just go back carefully to Revelation because I want to just make sure we see this, okay? Revelation chapter 20. All right. If we look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. All right, so there's the end of the thousand-year millennial reign. That, that thousand-year millennial reign is important to many commentators and many Bible uh, students and many Bible teachers. It's because we believe that within that thousand-year period, what can occur? What do we typically put within that thousand-year period? Why is the thousand-year period so important to many Bible students and Bible interpreters? Because there was about a thousand promises in the Old Testament that's made to Israel that has never been fulfilled. Okay, I know that's a little hyperbole, but we've only talked about this a million times, right? There's all those promises. Well, there's no, well, there's no other place to put them. Right, right. So I'm saying, why is that thousand-year reign so important to Bible interpreters? Well, Bible interpreters who say all of these things have to be fulfilled, there's no other place to fulfill them. Have they ever been fulfilled in history? No. So you've got two. Remember, you come down to it. You only have two options in theology. One, they're not going to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel. They're fulfilled in the church and they're not fulfilled literally. They're fulfilled spiritually. All right. There's option number one. Option number two, they're going to be fulfilled literally. If they're going to be fulfilled literally. All right. There's no other place to put them other than a thousand years where what has happened? The kingdom is given to. Okay. Remember the book of Acts? What did the disciples ask right before Jesus ascends back to the Father? Everybody look for it. It's in the book of Acts. We talked about this on Wednesday. Is it 1-6? What did the disciples ask? Will you restore the kingdom? Did they mention Israel? Uh, to Israel, right? Okay. Why are they asking that question? 
Well, they're Jews and they understand the Old Testament promises, right? Okay, if Jesus now has resurrected from the dead, they're like, okay, then he has to be the Messiah. So what do they assume the Messiah will do? Bring the kingdom. So they, they are still asking, does Jesus say, there is no kingdom, stop looking for one. The, what's getting ready to happen is the church is getting ready to be born. No, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, it's not, to know, it's not for you to know. Right? So then he tells them to go. So we have, our argument is that a, a kingdom has to be given to Israel. Well, there's only one place to put it. That's the thousand years, right? So that's why the thousand years is so critical to so many interpreters. Some believe the thousand years is not a literal thousand years, right? All millennialists believe that we are in the millennium right now. We're in the millennial kingdom now, and Satan is bound, right? Right now, okay? So, I mean, these systems are all over the place, right? But at the end of that thousand years, if we believe that thousand years is literal, Satan is loosed out of his prison. I know, I mean, any good Bible student Anyone who thinks would be probably like, that makes absolutely no sense. And I agree with you. It makes no sense. Why would you bind him for a thousand years just to release that? It makes no sense. Literally, it's the most confusing narrative. Like if you even try to follow the biblical story as a narrative, there's so much of it makes no sense. This makes no sense in the story. Okay, I I, I will be first to acknowledge that. He shall go out to deceive the, circle the word nations. Why is that important? Well, because any nation we find in Ezekiel 38 to 39 mentioned, it can fit right there because it just says nations, plural, right? I don't have to do any kind of, you know, linguistic, you know, jumping through hoops to, to make it work, right? I don't have to go, well, Rosh sounds like Russia and Mishak sounds like Moscow and Tubal sounds like Tubalsk, right? I don't have to play those games, right? It just says nations, plural. So I can put how many nations there? As many as I need. Which are in the four. Meaning that they can be located where? I don't have to figure out if they're north, south, east. It can be anywhere. And then what does it say? Gog and Magog to gather them together. Now, now the only problem is she'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. And it just says Gog and Magog. It doesn't really identify. Is that identifying that both as a place? Or is that because Ezekiel has Gog as what? A person. So that's the only maybe difficulty that we could have, right? How does the NIV translate uh, Revelation 28? It just says he shall go to deceive the nations. Did he say gather them at Gog or Magog? Okay. For battle. All right. But so all I know is this battle happens at the end of the millennium and it involves whom? Nations from the four corners and Gog and Magog are mentioned. That at least gets us where? It gets us at least back to Ezekiel 38, right? I'm not saying it's perfect. I, I Look, I understand it may not be. I understand. You're like, well, what about the rest of uh, Ezekiel? I'm with you. I don't know why the rest, nobody knows what's going on the rest of Ezekiel. That, those, everybody's been just like, I don't know, it's some temple that's never been built before. Look at the measurements of the thing. It makes no sense. The whole measurements of that thing is insane. You're like, what is that? So, go ahead. 
Well, that many refer to it as the millennial temple because there's never been another one like it. Right. So then either you spiritualize, you're right back to the same options. Your two options are the same. What are the two options? It's just all spiritual and it represents the church. It's the most ludicrous. I can't wrap my mind around that. Eight chapters or nine chapters of details and measurements and material. And you're like, hey, that's all. And you can make it, inter- you can make it mean anything. Now, if it's literal, I don't know where else to put it. I don't know where else to put it. I, I, I don't know where else to put the thing. All right. Um, well, I do have another idea, but okay, we won't go into that right now. We won't. I do have some ideas, but okay, we're going to run out of time. All right. Let's just go, uh, go. Let's go back to Ezekiel 38 really quick. Well, well, in Ezekiel 38, Gog is a leader. Magog is a place. And Revelation, well, Revelation, it just kind of puts them there. It doesn't really identify if they're both places or. Yeah, well, true. That's true. So then is it Gog the, I don't know. I, I wish Revelation was a little clearer there. Right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just, I just wish it was a little clearer. So back to Ezekiel thirty-eight, really quick. All right. Let's try. So we we've worked through. I, I, I don't think we. There's much more we can do with verse one, two, and three. Are, do you agree? There's not much more we can do with those three verses. Right. We've looked up all of those places and names, and we've looked at all the theories around it. All right. Here's the thing we need to look at. We need to start trying to figure out what is going on. Because all of a sudden it says, I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws. Everybody see that? How does the NIV translate verse 4? Okay. When he says, I will turn thee back, who is, the, who is he referring to? Gog. All right. So Gog... Magog, these places, the, the, whoever this is, they're going to be coming and God, and see who's going to be the one stepping in. God's going to step in and he's going to turn them around. He's going to intervene. So it's whoever God, Magog, whoever all the people involved in this, God is going to step in. That's what we'll have to take note of. What we need to figure out now, if we can't figure look, everyone seems to agree. Well, not everyone. Many commentaries agree that, hey, this is just, we don't have a clue who, what. We don't have a, we don't have a clue of the who. We may not even have a clue of the when. But if we can figure out the what, if we can figure out the what, then we could do a couple of things. First, if it was to occur in our time, if we know the what, then, then we can identify it if it happens, correct? Right. Two, if we know the what, we could also find out if it's ever occurred in the past, right? So if, if we can't figure out the when, and if we can't figure out the who, maybe we can figure out the what. So we're going to have to go through in the next hour and try to do our best to identify exactly what is going on to the best of our ability. 
and see if we can clearly identify what's going on. Like in Ezekiel 37, we, we can, well, there, we, can, we, know the where, we know the who, it's emphasized. We kind of know the where, and we kind of know the what. I mean, we're given almost everything, who, what, where, when. We're almost given everything in Ezekiel 37. You get to 38, it's completely opposite. We don't really know the who, we don't know the where, we don't, we don't really know anything. But I do love the fact that Revelation at least mentions God and made God, don't you? That gives me somewhere to go with it. So we'll figure out the what in the next hour. And that's where it's going to get a little, it may get confusing, but you're just going to have to work with me. Because we're going to try to just do what? Base the what off what? The text. I will look at commentaries. But we'll do that. All right, so let's stop. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning. We thank you that we're in a place where we can do this kind of work. Lord, I know right now there are churches everywhere with wild speculations pulling from their theological systems. And the thing is that people are going to actually miss the text. Help us do our very best to look at the text and forgive us when we impose our man-made systems upon your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,